Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com, and specifically the book Stratikos, Born in the Borderlands by Gordon Doherty. This is proper Byzantine historical fiction set during the 11th century. A young man with a tortured past contemplates joining the theme army as the threat from the Seljuk Turks begins to rise. If you'd like to listen to Stratikos for free, go to audibletrial.com forward slash tvcritic. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 224, The Coup of Anna Komnini with Leonora Neville. Today's episode is our transition from Alexius's reign to that of his son John. We're going to talk about the slightly bumpy succession process, and in particular the alleged coup attempt by Anna Komnini herself. We are also going to talk about the transition from one generation of historians to the next, so we'll talk a little about the writers who will guide us from the end of Alexius's reign all the way to the sack of Constantinople in 1204 AD. You might be surprised to hear that Anna was involved in an attempted coup, but this is accepted fact in many places you look. Let's start with her entry in the Oxford Dictionary of Byzantium, In 1118, with the support of her mother, she schemed in order to obtain the throne for her husband, but the success of her brother John forced her to retire to a nunnery. Let's elaborate on that with a few sentences from Anna's Wikipedia page. Following her father's death in 1118, Anna and her mother attempted to usurp John. Her husband refused to cooperate with them, and the usurpation failed. As a result, John exiled Anna to a nunnery where she spent the rest of her life. Various scholars are quoted on Wikipedia saying that Anna felt cheated because she should have inherited the throne, and that in the Alexiad she was trying to stress her own right to the throne and her precedence over her brother John. I am pleased to say that the editors have gone on to include the following... In contrast, Leonora Neville argues that Anna was probably not involved in the attempted usurpation. Anna plays a minor role in most of the available medieval sources. Only Coniates portrays her as a rebel. We'll get to who Coniates is in a moment. This characterization of Anna is widespread. Even in the Penguin English translation of the Alexiad, the introduction explains that she wrote her history in a spirit of anger and revenge against her brother who had thwarted her desire to rule the empire. Now you might remember that Professor Leonora Neville is who I interviewed back in episode 197, essentially our first episode about the era of Alexius and the Crusades. So it's fitting that we end this period by hearing again from Professor Neville. At the end of our conversation that day, I asked her about this portrayal of Anna, a portrayal which she refutes in her excellent book on the subject. Since it's been so long since the original interview, I will be butting in from time to time to provide you with needed context. The gist of this whole situation is that there were rumours and rumblings about the succession from Alexius to John. For some reason, as Alexius grew old and ill, his heir, John, was not handed the reins of government. Instead, Alexius turned to his wife, Irene, to deal with the daily workload. 
and when she needed help, she turned to her son-in-law, Nicephorus Vurianios, Anna's husband. When Alexius lay on his deathbed, John said his goodbyes and raced to the palace to establish himself in power. This lack of filial piety was noted and added to the gossip swirling around the capital. But that's it. Alexius died and John became emperor. It is only Coniates, a historian writing 90 years after the event, who adds that Anna wanted to kill her brother and make her husband emperor. This story has gained wide acceptance, and as you heard from Wikipedia, has been used by scholars as a way to interpret the Alexiad. So when Anna sounds sad or angry, or doesn't mention her brother in a passage, this has been taken as evidence of her bitterness over her failed coup. Back in episode 197, Professor Neville explained what she believes is behind some of the stranger passages in the Alexiad. Anna will often lament during her text, talking about the tragedies she has lived through, namely the deaths of her husband, father and mother. She expresses her grief with florid, emotive prose, completely at odds with the rest of her history, which sounds just like the texts produced by male historians. Professor Neville thinks this is the whole point. Women were not supposed to write history. They were meant to be humble and quiet. Writing history made a woman seem loud and arrogant. So in order to gain the pity of her audience as an anti-arrogance defence, Anna writes out these stereotypically female passages of performative mourning. As Professor Neville points out, her husband, father and mother all died of old age, still in power, still rich, and by all accounts in happy relationships. There was no cause for lamentation. But this lamenting has been interpreted by many scholars over the years as relating to her failed coup, an event for which we only have Coniates's word. So, my final question to Professor Neville was about this alleged usurpation and whether Anna has been slandered by all those historical summaries. There are things, when you're starting to study history, you pick up basic reference books and they tell you a story of what happened, of who killed who and who reigned after who. And this story that Anna wanted to be the empress and tried to have her husband murder her brother um, is just one of the things that's taught as a thing that happened. Um, so then it can be really surprising when you go back and really try to dig into that to see what holds it up. And the main thing that holds it up is what I just explained that the theory that Anna was livid throughout her life is used to explain the lamentations in the Alexiad. And before I came up with the theory that this is a way of humbling herself before her audience, which is actually a standard thing that we know from classical studies happens in ancient rhetoric and, and uh, late antique rhetoric all the time. So it's not a new thing that you cry in order to make people pity you so that they don't think you're arrogant. That's normal. But when I started applying that to the Alexiad and say, aha, this is the reason why she's weeping and wailing is to try to seem like a good woman, according to the gender standards of the 12th century then you don't need to use that story of the failed coup to explain why she's crying. 
And in the standard translations, which are excellent translations, and we're really blessed to have such good translations, there are plenty of parts, or like at least a couple of key places, where the meaning of the Greek is elucidated in light of our knowledge, supposedly, of what happened, right? So the fact that she, she led a revolt that failed is used to interpret the Alexiad. And that the Alexiad itself then becomes the key bit of information that holds up the theory of her revolt. Um, when she needs to, when she comes to talking about her sources, how did she come to this information? Right. That's later. It's in book 14. And she feels at this point, no one's going to believe her history unless she explains that she really did research. So she admits, I actually followed my father on campaign. But woe is me. Woe is me. Oh, this is so awful. My life is so horrible. Feel sorry for me. Right. Um, and then she says, yeah. And in addition to going out in a campaign, I interviewed old soldiers. Right. I went out and I found the people who were there and I talked to them. But I've never left the house in 30 years. And, and woe is me. Woe is me. I'm so sorry. Right. And she goes back and forth. This is crazy five pages in which she's going playing ping pong between a very dispassionate discussion of historical methodology and crying her eyes out. Right. And that lamentation is making it acceptable for her to talk about this very transgressive behavior. But in that, she does say, right after she said, I traveled around interviewing soldiers, right? She says, I've never left the house for 30 years. And people take that as the evidence that she was imprisoned because of her failed coup, right? And the reason people think, oh yeah, Anna admitted the whole thing because she said she's been in prison for 30 years, right? But in my reading, she only says that as rhetorical ploy. It's the same as she says that she's had countless seas and oceans of woes from before the time that she was seven, right? When she was a little girl from her infancy, from her cradle, she's had woes and problems, right? She was a princess in an imperial palace. She didn't have woes and problems as a baby, right? Um, that's just, it's rhetorical fiction, right? But that particular rhetorical fiction is taken as a fact because it holds up this story. Um, so, yes, at one point during her lament, Anna says, I have been at home for the past 30 years, or at least I have seen few people in that time. Thanks to other evidence, we also know that she lived in apartments attached to a monastic complex. Put these two things together, and one could draw the conclusion that, like so many failed rebels, she was incarcerated in a monastic house after her attempt to seize power. Running counter to this, though, is the fact that she had several children, that she attended their weddings, that she wrote and sponsored others to write philosophical texts, and that her husband continued to live with her and served in John's army for the rest of his life. This hardly sounds like a political exile. Now, some of this information has only come to light since 20th century scholars declared that Anna was a rebel who'd been locked up, but still... The story of Anna's coup continues to be told. It seems likely that her apartments on the monastic site were a convenient location to meet men other than her husband, by which I mean old soldiers she interviewed for her history and the philosophy students she patronised. By hosting them on monastic soil, some of the potential awkwardness of a married woman hanging out with other men could be avoided. Anna's claim that she hasn't left the house in 30 years is an attempt to sound like a good woman. As Professor Neville explained back in episode 197, the ideal Roman woman was one who had never been heard from, 
one who knew her place and who no one could gossip about. Anna, a history-writing, philosophy-patronizing princess, was clearly a source of gossip, and so has to come up with a literary artifice to protect herself from obvious criticism. Now we turn to the subject of the bumpy succession process. Now, Alexius, when he was getting old, did not choose to give John an army and have John campaign for him. Alexius had plenty of reasons to be distrustful of everybody, having grown up in a period of such political turmoil, people backstabbing each other all over the place. He was very hesitant to trust more than a very few people. He trusted his mom to take care of things for him and just a very few chosen generals. So he didn't give John a whole lot of power. In that situation, I think at the time there were plenty of people who were gossiping about that succession. And the person he did give authority to for at least doing some of the management as he got older, he did not give an army to Nikiforos Vrenios, but he did give Nikiforos authority within Constantinople to do management tasks for the empire. All right, so they've got a situation that's Anna's husband. So Anna's husband is doing a lot of managerial work in the palace um, for Alexius as he gets old, and presumably John isn't. So that's a perfect recipe for a lot of people to be speculating about tension in the transition. I don't think for a minute that Alexius ever considered anyone other than his firstborn son to be the heir, right? That just, that was the plan. There's no evidence that anyone actually ever tried to change the plan. But boy, would people have been gossiping about this situation. Um, Just to elaborate on this, the evidence makes it abundantly clear that John was the undisputed heir to the throne. He was crowned emperor as a child, he appeared on coins with his father and mother, he was present on several of Alexius's campaigns, including the final confrontation with Bohemond. In the peace treaty that the Normans signed, he promised to remain loyal not only to Alexius, but to his son and heir John. Professor Neville is now going to talk about Anna's husband, Nicephorus Vurienios. Remember that Nicephorus was the grandson of Alexius's main rival for the throne, a man who Alexius defeated in battle and blinded. The Vurienios family were the wealthiest landowners at Adrianople in Thrace, and so Alexius tried to heal the wounds between their families by marrying his eldest daughter to his rival's grandson. The marriage was a happy one, in part because Anna and Nicephorus shared a love of higher culture. Nicephorus even wrote a history of his grandfather's life, which covered Alexius's victory over him and some of Alexius's time in power. So that's what I think was happening. There was a lot of talk, a lot of, of tension. Um, certainly, uh, Nicephorus's own history makes a case for the validity of his own line, for his own family. He definitely denigrates Alexius, and he definitely says that his grandfather would have been a much better emperor if he hadn't been captured and blinded by Alexius. He simultaneously makes the case that infighting and civil war between aristocratic houses is horrible for the Roman Empire, right? That this destruction of the state, that they very nearly the whole thing came apart before Alexius, was caused by aristocratic infighting. And he thinks that's awful. So he's making two cases, that his house was best 
and he would have been a better emperor than John. I think it's clear he's making that case. At the same time, he's explaining to everybody, I support John because he's the person who's the emperor. And he's supporting this um, knitting together of the different houses so that this Komnenos family could be ruling and we could have peace and we wouldn't be having civil war. Uh, so if there is a... a the reception of Nikiforos' history is something to be nice to know more about. It certainly doesn't seem as if John minded that this um, stuff was coming out um, because it gets more virulent as it goes on. The first couple of chapters of Nikiforos' history, there's sort of teasing, um, slightly derogatory comments about Alexius. And then as it goes on, it gets more and more critical. And at the end, it's, it's really quite scathing. So, um, as this, this book was written, John certainly heard about it, and he didn't mind having his dad portrayed in such a way, or at least he didn't do anything to prevent Nikiforos from continuing to get more bold in the criticism of his household. Right. Um, as to the question, you know, would Anna have ever wanted to be empress? I, I think it's a rare person to sort of, you know, look themselves in the mirror and say, no, nah, I'd never want to be Byzantine empress. You know, I'd never want to be emperor. I mean, it's a really cool job. But was this something that she was working for? We have no evidence of that. Is this something that was the touchstone of her life? Obviously not. Because if it were the case that Anna had wanted to take over, wouldn't she have supported her husband's history that was saying that his family should have been in charge? Right? He has, Nikki Forrest has the more revolutionary text. Right? And her history is her bottle of that. She's supporting the house of Komnenos against the Vranios family and refuting her husband's history. So the idea that you, you often read in the histories that the reason why the coup failed was that Nikiforos was a wimp, right? They'll say that he was supposed to go and murder John, and then he just, he failed to do that. That's Koniati's story from the late 12th century. He says that uh, Nikiforos was supposed to go out and find John in a tent in the hunting fields and, and murder him, but he lost his passion for it. And the whole thing, the whole passage is filled with sexual innuendo. So it's his failure to go through with a murder is a, used with sexual double entendre to be a failed orgasm, right? And then Anna is supposed to be horribly, horribly upset at her wimpy husband and saying that I'm the man and you're the woman, um, but in very gross, um, vulgar terms. Right. So that story has Anna being the powerhouse wanting to claim the throne and Nikki Forrest being this passive, flaccid wimp. Um, yet, if you look at the things they actually wrote, Nikki Forrest is the one is saying that, you know, my family would have been a great emperors. Right. We would have done fabulous with this. And in fact, Alexius. Right. He's ruthless. He's uh, uh, craven and he's not a person of good moral character. Right. But we need to support him because civil wars are awful. Right. And then Anna comes along and says, no, Alexis is fabulous. Right. This is he's great. So her history is a refutation of her husband's history. So there isn't any way that you can read the Lexiad as an anti-Alexius text. There's no way to make it an anti-Komnenos history. So as you just heard, Koniatis's story is that once John was in power, Anna and Nicephorus agree to overthrow him, but their plan fails when Varianios loses his nerve. 
Anna is enraged by this and, echoing Cersei Lannister, says that it would be better if I was born a man, since then I'd be able to do this myself. Had this plot taken shape, it would have been an utter disaster for everyone involved. Alexius had other sons, and lots of other male relatives who would have disputed this coup. It could have sparked a ruinous civil war. John, by this point, already had seven children of his own, including more than one son. The succession was lined up for the next two generations. We're so used to hearing about usurpations and coups that on the surface this story sounds plausible, but in reality Anna and Nicephorus would have been quickly isolated and destroyed by the rest of the family for this unthinkably selfish act. And as Professor Neville says, the Alexiad is a text so firmly in Alexius's camp that it's hard to imagine the author had really wanted to destroy his succession plans for the cause of her own vanity. Um, so whatever happened, you know, when they're in their 20s, when he died, um, they certainly got over it. Um, and there's not really any evidence that much of anything happened. And as for Coniates, uh, I described it, how all the story of politics can be read with this simmering sexual glop underneath. Um, the whole introduction to his history is setting up the story of the decline of the Roman Empire by rooting it in the sexual dysfunction of Anna's family. Her parents and her and her husband and her brother are all described as the exact inversion of the proper role that they should have according to the norms of their society. They're doing exactly the opposite. So Irene is not deferent to her husband, right? And he is not able to keep his cool. He does not have dispassion. He loses it and gets angry. And John is disrespectful and Irene doesn't like him. They're all backwards. Um, and it's and it's all heavily sexualized throughout the entire passage. But when you're reading it in translation, you don't get any of that. And you just get this rather strange story um, in which Anna sticks out as this woman who wants to be a man. Um, and so people focus on that and they read the whole thing as if it really happened. Where it's, I think it's really quite clear. Coniati says, you know, my history is really going to start when we get to the, the events that I actually know about. But I'm going to start back here anyway, just to start. Right. So it's clearly a prologue or an archaeology that's explaining the backstory to the real history that he gets going. Um, so I don't see any reason to take that as him really saying that any of this stuff happened. And it's, it's all pretty fantastical um, in the story. We will, of course, be talking a lot more about Nikitas Koniatis when our narrative resumes. He is the heir to Procopius, to Psellos, to Anna, as in he writes a vivid, colourful narrative history rather than, say, a dry chronicle. But Coniates was writing after the Crusaders had sacked Constantinople. Coniates was, understandably, horrified by this event, and naturally it coloured his entire history. We talked about the effect that capturing Jerusalem had on those who wrote about the First Crusade. Now think about Coniates. He was a very high official who had lived through Alexius's grandson's reign, so John's son's reign. And then he'd seen the empire fall apart, infighting between the fourth generation of imperial Komnenoi, 
led to disaster after disaster culminating in the Latin takeover of the capital. Looking back for a place to begin his history, Coniates landed on Alexius's death. As Professor Neville and Professor Caldellis point out, though, his description of Alexius's dysfunctional family is clearly modelled on a text by Xenophon, the ancient Athenian writer. Like most medieval history writers, Coniates sees the fall of the empire as a result of the moral failings of its leaders. So he looks back to the start of the Komnenian dynasty and claims that the moral rot had set in already with Alexius's family. The modelling on Xenophon's text is so strong that it seems likely that Anna's coup was entirely made up by Coniates. He built on the rumours surrounding John's bumpy succession and used them as a basis to begin his exploration of the fall of the Komnenoi. This one interpretation of events by a male historian is then accepted by future generations of male historians as fact, in part because Anna, being such an exception to the rule, was left open to being misinterpreted and marginalised. I make a case that Anna would have convinced many of her readers that she was both a good woman and a good historian. At least she has an arrow in the quiver for every argument against having a woman write history. And I think for a lot of people that she actually knew, it probably worked. When we get to 30, 40 years later, another person, Koniatis, who by all accounts is extremely traditional in his morality, um, his wife never left the house, right? Um, and he's, his family is very much sticking up for the women should be secluded, the men should act, and everyone should play their proper roles. I think it's entirely possible that he read the Alexiad and he would have been able to understand the way that she was responding to the criticisms of her culture, the way that we have not been able to understand. But it still might not have worked, right? He still might have been pissed off that this is a woman who was so arrogant and had such had the effrontery to say that a woman could write a history, right? Because although she's doing all of these tricks, we've only talked about a couple of them, but she does many different things throughout the book to try to mitigate against the sense that she's being transgressive and arrogant to be a woman writing history. My bet is that Coniati still thought that she was arrogant and transgressive and a bad woman because she tried to write a history. So when it came to writing his history, he portrayed her as this you know, fairly insane, sexually deprived shrew who was yelling at her husband about how they had the wrong genitals, right? Um, and then later readers, 18th, 19th, 20th century readers, we don't get any of her apologetic work. We don't understand any of the things that she does to make herself look good, but we sure see all the problems, right? And the culture of thinking that a woman shouldn't really be writing history was really pretty relevant up until, you know, middle of the 20th century, um, and we have some late 20th century stuff, too. Um, there's one person who's who makes the argument that um, she didn't really write it. She wrote all the girly bits, but all the parts that are the masculine historical voice were written by her husband. Right. So there's the idea is that women really don't write history or women wouldn't be interested in writing history. And you have to be a real strange woman if you did. There's enough similarity between that attitude and Khaniati's attitude, that people have been very willing to take his criticism and say it's factually true, right? And then there are also historians who would say, well, Khaniati's right it and he wouldn't have lied, so it's true, right? So people would take everything as absolutely true, right? And 
and accept anything that he would say without trying to figure out. So my logical case, you know, she's actually, she's countering the revolutionary case that would back her husband. Doesn't make much sense because that's thinking about history on a different level as opposed to just accepting that what Honeyati said was true because he's a good guy and wouldn't lie. And so one one man's claim that she's arrogant undoes books and books full of her humbling herself to try and avoid that slur. I think that's what happened. <laughs> well, we have to thank you for trying to peel back those layers and, and get Anna to be read on her own terms. And uh, we will do best, or do our best here on the podcast to go forward with that in mind as we uh, go through Alexius's reign. Thank um, you. Thank Professor you so Neville. much for your interest in Anna. Ah, Professor Neville, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sure. You're welcome. That is the end of the interview. So if in future you hear that Anna wanted to be empress and remained bitter to the end of her days, you will hopefully think again. One hanging thread here, though, is the question of why Alexius and his wife didn't hand John more power while Alexius was still alive. We have no hard evidence either way. It is Anna's contemporary, the chronicler John Zonorus, who tells us that John felt insecure about the succession, that he was anxious that Vurianios was being given responsibility, and that he urged those around him to renew their vows of loyalty to him. Both Zonorus and Anna confirm that on Alexius's deathbed, John stopped in to say goodbye, and then rushed to the palace to secure power. Though this was an undignified thing to do, it was hardly a foolish precaution. These are the moments when new emperors are at their most vulnerable, and John made sure that he was not open to any challenge. The question of why he wasn't given power is left open, but we have seen this insecurity and lack of communication on many previous occasions. I suspect it is just a function of court life, as viewers of Netflix's The Crown will be well aware. John was 31 in his father's final year. He was a grown man with a family of his own to look after. It was often felt that there was something demeaning about an emperor-to-be still taking orders from his mother. So perhaps to avoid that stigma, the two sides kept to their separate domains. There are all sorts of awkward situations at a moment like this. John's entire household was, to some extent, waiting for Alexius to die. Once John was emperor, everyone around him, from family members to servants, would rise to the highest of stations. And concurrently, all those serving Alexius would be demoted. To have John take charge of the daily affairs of government, would lead to all sorts of clashes between the old guard and the new. So to avoid conflict, sons were often left out of things until their moment came. Once in power, John would begin campaigning immediately, and one of his major policy objectives was the recovery of Antioch, indicating strongly that he had been groomed by his father to be Vasilevs, and that the two were on the same page. That's all from me today. Next time, we have a very special episode 
suggested and recorded by a kind listener. It's an interview with the lead singer of the metal band Judicator, a man who turned Belisarius' story into an entire metal album. It's a really enjoyable interview. And for those of you who are keen for more Byzantium in your pop culture, I really think you'll enjoy the discussion of how that story of 6th century Byzantium is transformed into modern music. In the meantime, if you are looking for some quality Byzantine audio, I'd like to recommend the book Stratigos, Born in the Borderlands, by Gordon Doherty. This is the first in a trilogy set in the era of the Battle of Manzikert. We follow a young man named Appian, who has scars from a mysterious past and a huge role to play in the conflict between Byzantium and the Seljuk realm. The story has elements of fantasy, but is mainly in the vein of my own House of War series, a soldier's life in the borderlands of Byzantium as the Turkic tribes come knocking on the door. I've heard the whole of the first book on Audible, and if you'd like to check it out, then go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic, and you can get it for free. By signing up there, you begin your subscription to Audible's excellent service, and you can cancel the subscription anytime and keep the free book on your phone. That link again is audibletrial.com forward slash TV critic.